This is the Gary Bushell Show on wonderful Radio Latopia. He is one of TV's longest-serving and most respected comedy writers. He wrote gags for Bob Monkhouse for decades and has worked with stars ranging from Sir Terry Wogan to Joan Collins via Dave Allen and to Michael Caine. But now, after four decades of being funny for money, Colin Edmonds has turned his hand to steampunk fiction with his debut novel, Steam, Smoke and Mirrors, published this month. Good evening, Colin, and good evening, culture lovers. <laughs> good evening. Good evening, Just the first time, the first time the words culture and Colin Edmonds and most respected have been used in the same paragraph. But Never not the life. last, not the last. <laughs> and we will get to your book, I promise you that, but first... I wanted to ask you how you got into the notoriously tough business of comedy writing, especially you're, you're, you're a working-class boy from Paddington, your dad's a plumber, you haven't got any showbiz in you at all. What made you want to do it? Well, I always wanted to write. Cause, because we lived in Kensal Rise in an upstairs flat, I uh, didn't have access to the garden, uh, so I grew up on, in the summer holidays reading, uh, immersing myself in books, you know, Enid Blyton and Tintin and those kinds of escapist adventures. And I, I could live my childhood through the adventures of the Famous Five and, and Tintin and, and Biggles and those kinds, of, those kinds of characters. And I thought, yeah, I wonder if I could write. And so I used to write little short stories for myself. And then as I got older, I used to watch TV, Sunday Night at the London Palladium, and I was really intrigued by the comedians that appeared on Sunday Night at the Palladium. Tommy Trinder and those kinds of folk who were getting big laughs from this audience. And I was intrigued by the reaction that, that, that this guy could say something on stage and get that reaction from a crowd. I thought it was wonderful. Trinder was sensational, wasn't he? I mean, really attacking comedy. And, and I, I, that was, I think that's what really introduced me to attacking comedy. Yeah. I don't like laid-back stuff. I like plenty of attack. Make the audience have it. <laughs> it's an old Bob Monkhouse expression. Make them have it. And then we went on holiday to Torquay. It's an old DLT expression too, but we won't go into that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> don't let's try DLT. Um, we went to... It was Torquay or Paynton. It was the, it was the Princess Theatre Paynton. And we saw a show starring, I think it was Leslie Crowther, and this comedian came on called Larry Grayson. Ah. And he... Before TV? Much, or yeah. years before TV. And he put us away. He was hysterical. And he was doing, look at the muck in here, shut that door. But the effect was hypnotising. All of that camp stuff. Wonderful. Yeah. And it was just... And it, you, yeah, you ached yeah. watching Larry Grayson. A master. And the face was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It, 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 the timing was exquisite. And then I thought, oh, comedy. At the same time, of course, I'm listening to... Um, I'm growing up with um, Sunday lunch being cooked uh, to um, the sound of Round the Horn. And Clivero Kid and all those sort of Kid wonderful things. And Ken Dodd was at that time, yeah. um, Al Reed, uh, the Navy Lark particularly. But Round the Horn was my, my favourite. I love Kenneth Horn. He, was one of my, he still is one of my great heroes. Kenneth Williams and Hugh Paddock and Betty Julian Marsden. and Sandy. Oh, hello, I'm Julian. This is my friend Sandy. Wonderful comedy worlds they created that, you, of course, you had to visualise because there wasn't anything to see. Absolutely. Written by Barry Took and Marty Feldman. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I just love that use of words. And that got me interested in comedy. Then we spin forward a little bit to Bob Monkhouse on Golden Shot. And I saw Bob doing topical jokes at the beginning of a live Golden Shot show, jokes which he'd culled from the headlines of stuff that had happened that day. And I thought, oh, isn't that clever? I wonder if I can do that. And that's how I really started having the chutzpah, really, the audacity, the shameless audacity to write comedy. Uh, and I used to write these things that I thought were jokes, and I would send them to various comedians. Presumably in a with a feathered quill back then. It was a long time ago. <laughs> it, was, it was banging out on an old... Uh, it was a new 
portable typewriter that my mum and dad saved up for me. It was, I remember it was a birthday and a Christmas present put together. It was a Smith Corona typewriter, plastic, a plastic-formed lid, which you clicked open with plastic buttons, and I'd bash out my jokes on these things and send them off to comedians. And Bob was one of the few people that actually replied. With Do you a, remember what you sent him? Um, or was it ridiculous? Uh, one of the early jokes I yeah. sent him concerned... <laughs> can you believe this? It concerned Cliff Richard. And it concerned... It was at a time... This will anchor it in time for you. Um, this was the time, Gary, when Cliff Richard was dating Sue Barker, the tennis player. OK? And so the joke was... Here's the joke. The joke was... Um, oh, Cliff's, Cliff's with Sue Barker, you know. But he's still very religious. Uh, even in the bedroom, he still, he still insists on a sermon on the mount. OK, that was the <laughs> Hey! <laughs> okay. So that was the joke. Yeah. And, that, and you're 16 when you wrote this? I, I'm, I'm a bit later now. Yeah. But it's one yeah. of my better jokes. And uh, I'm not 18 yet, but, but you know. Uh, <laughs> and he, uh, that really kind of attracted Bob's interest. His antenna twitched. And he thought, oh, maybe. And he was very encouraging. What did he say? He said, I think you can write jokes. These other jokes aren't very good, and these are the reasons why. There's a kernel of, of humour in that, but that's phrased wrongly. That idea is completely wrong. That will never play. And I always remember that. So, so, so he's taken the time to analyse. Yeah. yeah. Suddenly, I'm, there I am between the ages of 16 and 18, still at school, getting masterclasses from Bob Monkhouse. Who, without a doubt, was one of the greatest and sharpest com- English comedians of the last hundred years. One of the great comedy minds. Yeah. There's no doubt about that at all. Oh, he was so intellectual, so smart and so analytical but knew what would... Years and years ago, I said... When I was working with Bob very, very closely and knew him very well and had been with him for 25 years, I'd said, I heard an interview with John Lloyd, the producer of Blackadder, on the radio. And John Lloyd said, you know, we look at these the scripts of Blackadder and how can we make this... Mm, yeah, we... Uh, got to make it funnier, got to make it funnier. Can we, can, will that, is that funny, is that funny, is that funny? And then we worked on those scripts and we said, is that funny? And Bob said, I don't, I don't do that. Well, what do you mean you don't do that? He said, well, no, he said, I look at a page of jokes and I don't think, is that funny? I think, will it get a laugh? And he said, there's a subtle difference because it's what I don't want to be as a comedian. He's standing there in front of the crowd and them all nodding, saying, yes, that's very funny. Yeah, yeah, what I need as a performer is that crack of laughter. Yeah. Will that get a laugh? And that was a, what, another Monkhouse masterclass in how to present and produce comedy. And uh, uh, what age are you when you do the IPC course? Ah, well, um, age 16, I sent some, some quickies to the Dave Allen show. Remember the Dave Allen show? Of course. Oh, it was a wonderful show. It was an irreverent, oh, wonderful, hard... No, another master craftsman. Yeah, and, and pioneering, <laughs> real. I mean, if you talk about edgy comedy now, my goodness me, nothing was more edgy than the really Dave... Really upset the Daily Mail back then. The Dave Allen yeah. show in those days. And I wrote a quickie, several quickies for the, J, the Dave Allen show, and a quickie, is a, as you know, is a short sketch. And they bought one. I think, wow. it, I think it was about 50 quid, which was a lot of money in those days. And you're, and, still, a, you're still a teenager? I was still a teenager. That was my, that was my first credit. And um, there were... The great thing about the BBC in those days was they were really encouraging to new writers... Anyone could write, any kitchen sink writer, they'd look at the material and analyse it, and if it was good enough, they'd use it and they'd pay for it. And I remember the old script writer, Spike Mullins, not Spike Milligan, Spike Mullins. Yeah. He used to write Ronnie Corbett's um, monologues in the chair in The Two Ronnies. And Mullins said to me, he said, oh, yeah, mate, he said, I've seen that. All them names going up, all them writers' names going up on the, on the Dave Allen show. 
It's like the dead of two world wars. (laughs) (laughs) What lives with you? What what, um, echoes of memories you get? But Mm. the great thing about the Beatles, they encouraged everybody. And the Dave Allen Show, uh, writers like Austin Steele and Peter Robinson and Peter Vincent, they were the script editors in those days at the BBC, and they encouraged people like me. So in the meantime, I'm sending my jokes out to to comedians, and, and of course Bob Mancaster was one of those great sponsors that I had. Um, and really, to, to any writer, I would say, if you can get a sponsoring performer, and gosh, it's much harder these days, if you can get a sponsoring performer or a sponsoring producer, then you're on the way. So a, a year later, 18, you get your first sitcom uh, recorded and transmitted. Yeah. Did, was that about the same process, or did, or did you m- meet someone who knew someone and had a commission by then? No, once again, that was sheer dogged chutzpah. That yeah. was sh- determination. Bear in mind, Gary, I'm, I'm writing stuff all the time. I'm doing my homework at home, and I'm then going into my bedroom and I'm writing this stuff. And, and my mum and dad are getting a bit worried because all my friends are going out, and I'm not. I'm, I'm in my bedroom writing this stuff to get it rejected. You know, uh, we would breakfast to the sound of a flump coming through the for the front door, and that was the, the the last rejection coming through from the BBC or ITV or wherever. And you've got to want it badly. If you're a writer, you've got to want it badly. And um, I always say, you know, you bash your head against a brick wall, and either your head gives in or the brick wall gives in. But you've got to stick with it. And I wanted it badly. I wanted to be a writer badly. And so I'd write sitcoms and always get them rejected. And I thought, well, why don't I try for a, a show that exists? And one of the big shows on TV at that time in the, oh, gosh, I'm talking way early 70s, was Bless This House with... with Sid James. Sidney James and yeah. Diana Coupland and that. And it was a huge show for Thames Television. So I wrote a script for that. And the producer, William G. Stewart... No uh, less. No less. A 15 to 1 Ex- Exactly yeah. so. Um, uh, and to his, his script editor, one of the men who created uh, Bless This House, Vince Powell, read the script and they kind of quite liked it. So they had me in. I went down to Teddington on the train. <laughs> got, the, got the train. You, you, oh. And Teddington, you know, is a, a strange place to get to. Teddington is very difficult to get to from Twickenham, which is the next village along. But anyway, I found myself in the, in the Broom Road Teddington Studios of Thames Television, where, God, what a historical place that was, where, they, where the Avengers would, would produce live there. Oh, and so many of those great Thames shows were there. Benny Hill was there all the time. Um, and Vince Powell said, change that, change that, do this, and we'll buy the script. And so I did, and they bought the script, and they paid me 300 quid. Wow, that's a king's ransom in those days. And it was scheduled for uh, broadcast um, during a recording session uh, in some week's time. Uh, unfortunately, there was a makeup girl strike, and so my Bless This House script was the one that they lost. Uh. So in order to kind of make it up to this young fella who's so enthusiastic they said right vince is not going to write the next series of love thy neighbor now there's a there's a sitcom to remember would you like to write an episode of that or at least try so i did and sure enough they bought that so when my bless this house wasn't recorded and broadcast my love thy neighbor was with rudolph walker rudolph walker jack smithhurst kate williams Nina. A completely unrepeatable now I feel. No. yeah but what were the rules then? What 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 were the constraints? What couldn't you do when you were writing an ITV sitcom in the late sixties, early seventies, mm. early seventies? It's yeah. interesting, you know, because oh, times change, don't they, Gary? Um, f- Love thy neighbour. Look back on Love Thy Neighbour with with less of a jaundiced view, and the the two protagonists, 
Jack Smithhurst and Rudolph Walker, they were both bigots. Yeah. But they were comedy figures. And the voices of reason were the black wife... Yes, the lovely and... And the white wife. Yeah. And, and that they... Nina Semper. Baden-Semper. Nina Baden-Semper. Yeah. And they were the voice of reason. Yeah. And I know people look back on um, Love Thy Neighbour with a bit of a frown uh, because of the language it's u- it used and the, and, and the subject matter. But actually, you know, if you strip away, away... I guess I'm not defending it, but what I'm saying is that the bigots were the butt of the joke and we're saying bigotry and this kind of enmity is... You are a figure of they fun. They were pig-headed, they were yeah. blinded by... Yeah, and they were both yeah. as bad as each other. And, that, and so that was my first sitcom at the age of 18. And that was another 300 quid. Oh, I thought, oh, boy. So suddenly there's a financial incentive to continue writing as well, well as... Probably what they pay now as well, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, yes, that's, good, that's damn good money. It's, it's, it's all changed, Gary. You, you were Bob's, Bob Monkhouse's principal writer for 40 years up until his uh, sad death in December 2003. I mean, I knew him pretty well but nowhere near as well as you you were practically family would you say yeah yeah you even inherited the famous joke books who which were not as the tabloid press made it seem just some gags he'd scribbled down but actual works of art themselves weren't they as well you know absolutely yeah they were profusely illustrated with cartoons and each joke was was written in bob's beautiful calligraphy each joke was in a different color for ease of identification a through to z so if you said to me now, oh, Cole, give me a joke on Australia. I would reach for one of Bob's books and go to A, flip through, come to a, a little cartoon of Australia where the A would be drawn as a, a boomerang, and there would be a dozen or so Australian jokes throughout the A section. Um, it was a discipline that he started when he f- first began as a writer and continued right through to the end. And those books went with him everywhere. There were there were two books. Um, well, there were more than two books, actually. There were... They were, as, as Paul O'Grady will reveal on the documentary, which we'll talk about later, I guess, is that there were more than two books. Um, but they went with him everywhere so that we, if we had that conversation, oh, uh, and have you got anything on, um, on art? Oh, yeah, I've got, I've got a few jokes on Picasso here. Go to art. Blah, 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 and there, there are the jokes. So I, I was fortunate enough to inherit those jokes when Bob's pa- Bob passed away for the simple reason that he knew that I would continue using them as a working tool. I wouldn't put them in a, a glass case in a museum to be revered, you know. And I got them, when I inherited them, they were battered. And I've got a bit, 13, well, 12, 13 years later, they're still battered, and even more battered, you know, because whenever I write a script now, I would go to the books. But even for, to set you off in a different direction from maybe, not as opposed to just copying it, but... To... No, for inspiration, yeah, absolutely yeah. for inspiration. If you get stuck writing a... a, a a Problems in the Park script for Terry Wogan. Oh, another opera joke. Go to go to music or go to show business, and there there are jokes there which will inspire you. A lot of the stuff doesn't stand the test of time. Of course, it doesn't because it's it is anchored in time. But it, there are, I would try Gary to get at least one Bob joke from the books into the script, so that way for me his memory lives on. I uh, I was always amazed at how dedicated he was and how he wanted to make everything as funny as he possibly could and and that professionalism he brought to everything was incredible and i know you were working with him on the on the night when on the on the national lottery live on the night when the draw machine failed to work oh yeah well bob's tenure on the national lottery live was uh, was fraught with danger and i think i've got to say 
He needed to be brilliant because he was a bit of a jinx. Because so much stuff went wrong on the National Lottery Live when Bob was presenting. It never happened to Dale Winton, never happened to Carol Smiley, but always when Bob was on the show. For example, he came down... One show, before I get to the lottery breakdown, on one show he walked down to the theme music and said, welcome to the National Lottery Live, folks. And the monologue, which he, I, Rob Colley and Debbie Barham had lovingly prepared uh, that Saturday morning for that live Saturday night broadcast... Um, I said, I said, in fact, I said to the autocue operator, oh, Mr Fluff's in town a bit tonight because his timing wasn't as sharp as it usually was. Something was up. And when we came off afterwards, he said, well, that was a bit hairy. So I said, what was wrong? He said, well, he said, my autocue screens weren't working. So I did the monologue from memory. So I had monologue from memory? Yeah. How many minutes would that have been? Oh, that would have been uh, five Four and a half, five minutes. So he did it from memory. So naturally the phrasing wasn't as smooth. And, I, and, and so I turned to him and I said, don't you ever do that again. And I pointed at him. I was furious. And he, and he, he looked alarmed. And he said, what? I said, no. I said, no. You, when that happens, you tell us all. You say, my autocue screen isn't working. And that way we know. Because the thing is, when you're a performer, Gary, as well you know as a performer, the only person looking at the autocue screen is you. Is it, of course. Because yeah. everyone else yeah. is behind the camera, audience, technicians and stuff. They don't know the damn thing's not working, except you. So you, you tell us. You bloody tell us. Oh, yeah, OK. It'll never happen again, Cole. It'll never happen again. But, yeah, OK, yeah, I'll see what you say. Well, I guess it was about a month later. Uh, please, Alan Dedico says, please welcome your host of the National Lottery Drive, Bob Monkhouse. And Bob comes down and says, folks, welcome to the National Lottery Drive. Thank you so much for being here. And, you know, when you're presenting a live television show, the last thing you want to be confronted with is three blank autocue screens. <laughs> and it, it happened again. Yeah. It happened again. And so well, this time, Quentin, the floor manager, is tapping these damn hoods, rattling these things to make this damn thing work. And Ava on autocue is twiddling her buttons to try and make the damn thing work. And once again, Bob harumphed his way through this wonderful um, monologue, getting his laughs and, and taking his timing. And his, 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 his timing improved, and it was very good. And I came off and I said, oh, that was wonderful. He said, oh, I, yeah, I was, I was pleased with that. It's pretty good. He said, don't tell them that the autocue came on halfway through the monologue. <laughs> <laughs> but now you know. Do you, do you remember his lottery joke? I, I, I thought it was a classic lottery joke. As soon as he started doing a lottery, he crafted his own joke about playing a lottery and going into the corner shop to buy a lottery ticket. Do you remember this game? Remind me of that game. But I, I, before you remind us of, of that particular joke, he always used to say, uh, I, know I'm, I know I'm a sinner, but make me a winner. And that got in oh, hundreds of complaints from the re- religious fraternities. I know I'm a sinner, but make me a winner. So tell us the joke, Gary. Oh, he said something, he'd gone into his lo- uh, local news agents and the man behind the, uh, the jumper said to him, he asked for a lottery ticket and the man said... Oh, you've got more chance of being hit by lightning than that. Your number's coming up, Mr Monkhouse. And Bob replied, you have your dream and I'll have mine. <laughs> Which was wonderful. I remember that joke. Then the lottery machine broke down, that's right. Yeah. Um, we'd rehearsed the lottery machine breaking down the, the week before. Peter Estel, our esteemed producer, who's now no longer with us, came in and said, oh, gentlemen, I, we do need to... Camelot had been on at me, we do need to rehearse a breakdown. So we rehearsed the breakdown, it was fine. Uh, that, don't worry, Cole, it'll never happen. Sure enough... <laughs> the next the jinx of Bob. yeah, the jinx of Bob kicked in, and then very next week the lottery machine broke down. John Willem pressed the button; the damn thing didn't revolve, the balls didn't drop. It was just ah, and um, and so nobody really knew what to do. And so um, Alan Dedicote 
on record is saying, uh, we do so we seem to have a problem with the, the draw machine, so we'll now ask Bob Monkhouse to approach John Willem to find out what is the procedure now. And Bob said, John Willem, what is the procedure now? <laughs> and the effect was hilarious. So Bob, taking his own cue, said, um, lot, uh, casualties on next. I have a feeling we're going to be back after casualty and we'll do the draw then and linked us to the to, to credits and it was a great show because it had Luciano Pavarotti on it and Elton John singing a, a duet <laughs> and uh, so so there I'm on the credits with Luciano Pavarotti and I'm bloody Elton John and we've been on this terrific history making show it's, it's hard to believe that many if, or even any of the people they now have hosting the National Lottery Live would be able to cope in a situation like that Without I, going to pieces. I, I would contend that a lot of the presenters wouldn't be able to cope with an autocue breakdown. Uh. They wouldn't be able to ad lib because they've got no act to fall back on. And probably don't take that much notice of, of the jokes when you're putting the monologue together. Because Bob would carefully craft these, these yeah, monologues. Sure, yeah, yeah, and yeah. he would go through it and go through it and perform it to himself. And so it would be seated in, in, in his memory. And I would suggest that today's um, presenters wouldn't necessarily be able to cope with either the breakdown... Well, there are some good, oh, some great presenters on live TV, aren't there? Uh, Anton Deck and those kinds of folk. Uh, they could, they could, they could do it standing on their heads. Yeah, but I'll tell you what I wanted to say to you. You've worked with some of the absolute greats, the giants of British variety, the giants of comedy. How must you feel now to see the tev- TV schedules dominated by talentless twerps like that gurning, gormless fool Vernon Kay or? or Dermot, who's like the colour beige in a suit, you know, that, that must surely annoy you, because it annoys the hell out of me. It, do, it does strike me as as being odd that they, that television broadcasters now don't want comedians or entertainers per se to present their shows. They have presenters. Dermot's marvellous on Radio 2, on that show he does on a Saturday afternoon. He's a, he's an immensely capable man. But you, and the same with Vernon. He's a very personable fellow. He's very handsome. He's very smooth in front of the of the um, of the cameras, and holds it together in, in a perfectly. If, pro- he, if, profession- you sent, if you sent him out in front of an audience and said entertain them for fifteen minutes, what could he do? Well, that's the thing. Um, uh, my my yardstick when it when it comes to a performer on television, can they do fifty minutes at the lakeside? And if they can't, I'd think, oh, should they really be doing a light entertainment show? That's always my yardstick. And so that's why, what makes me disappointed about the way television is going, that you haven't got entertainers per se with a big E uh, on, the, on, the, um, on the front of the word entertainer. They're not presenting television shows. But even with the Oscars this week, I felt that. I mean, Neil, for all his, the, for all his ability as a comic actor, he hasn't got the attack of a proper comedian. He hasn't got the, the skill... Over Chris Rock or... Or, or, or Joan Rivers. Joan Rivers, mm. who they, they actually forgot to even include in their role called the dead. Isn't that Steve extraordinary? Martin, people like that. You know? Yeah. Billy Crystal. Mm. These are proper people, proper yes. comedians. So if things go wrong, um, and Paul O'Grady. Oh, Paul O'Grady. Yeah, Paul O'Grady is superb. He is, yeah. he is our current genius, along with Graham Norton, in my view. I mean, that's why watching the Paul O'Grady show uh, of, of an evening... He's such a masterclass because he's totally in control and you know that if something goes wrong 
And he's on it. Yeah. yeah. And, and if, I, if I'm the guest and I've got nothing else to say and Paul's got 20 minutes, can you fill for 20 minutes, Paul? Yeah, he can. He could. Yeah. He can fill Bob, for 20 minutes. Bob could have filled for two hours. Well, yeah. <laughs> but what they could yeah. both, but Bob and Paul and, yeah. and entertainers can do, they can fill 20 minutes and be hilarious at the same time because yeah. they've got stuff to fall back on. They've got the yeah. action to fall back on. Are the producers aware of how important that is or not? I mean, what was what were the producers like on the lottery show working with Bob? Did they pay him the respect he was due or were they, was it a struggle sometimes? We had two producers on national lottery life which uh, handled bob with bob's tenure um one was mark wells who is a very very good entertainment producer he'd set up that particular national lottery format which was a, a 20 minute variety show pop music interview pierce brosnan talking about his latest film samuel L. jackson talking about his latest film mystic meg how can we forget meg oh, God. <laughs> bob doing jokes you know um what was the mystic meg gag do you remember that Is oh that were, well that's the great thing about the lottery because it lent itself to bob Monkhouse <laughs> jokes we used to do john willen jokes and we used to do mystic meg jokes mystic meg we'd say what could we say about meg oh um we used to introduce her, introduce her as the crone with the drone <laughs> and we say oh Le- meg was late getting into the studio coming to the studio this morning um yeah she uh, that's right she where oh, where she where she lives she couldn't open the lid <laughs> and she, oh, meg loved it john willen hated it he raced he loaded those balls through gritted teeth and always bob would say there is the grictus the rixus grin of our draw master john willen going about his skillful work as the poor man's just dropping balls into him. <laughs> and, and camelot took it took issue with it they said can he be a little more respectful please oh, so he must have complained i, I would presume i would imagine it was a, a corporate thing so mm. can we please treat the the draw with a little at the end of, of the lottery show bob used to say i hope you're a winner and, and look at his lottery ticket and tear it up and throw it in the air and lottery lottery people came down very hard on that because they said can bob not tear up his lottery well he's not one no 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 you don't have people people don't you you have winners and people who don't win you never have losers on the lottery is that right? <laughs> Apparently so, you know. I think, if yes, if you've got 12 million quid, you're a winner, and if you've not, you, I think you're a loser. But but they stopped Bob tearing up the ticket. I, don't, I, I guess it's a corporate thing. I guess it's like now we've got crooks and we've got people who aren't MPs. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the same sort of thing. The there is, there's a Bob joke, isn't there? And that is on the way to the tagline. It, it's, uh, you say, I'm a comedian, and, and no, other pro- no other profession do people come up, oh, you're a comedian, tell me a joke. Uh, they don't say that any other profession. They don't say, oh, you're a politician, tell me a lie. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's, that's really telling now. Uh, you're a gynaecologist, take a look at the wife. I, I, I love that joke. <laughs> I do love that joke. And it was nothing to do with me, it was all now, me. you've always told me that you never wanted to be a producer, you never wanted to be that side of the camera, you, you know, you didn't want to be... In a, and yet now I see that you produced a documentary series about Bob Monkhouse. What happened there? Oh, what happened there? Oh, I, got, I was prevailed upon. Um, it's the, the idea... There have been two documentaries about Bob in the last ten years, one on ITV, one on BBC, both very detailed and nice pieces of work and me as a passionate bobster looked at them i took part as a as a talking head give it sticking in my tuppence about bob Monkers, my tuppence worth and i was very pleased they were very respectful but when uk tv approached me to say do you think there's a, a documentary about bob's books bob's joke books i said nah 
I said, I really don't think so. I don't think there's enough uh, material to, to, to warrant an hour's documentary on Bob. And but the story's been told. And they came back again and they said, well, are you sure? And I said, well, maybe. It was an interesting com- a conversation because the commissioner was approaching me to say, what about making this show? And I was saying to the commissioner, no, I don't think so. Usually it's... Every other time, it's the other way around. Yes, yeah, yeah. You go to the commissioner, he says, nah. Many, many times. Yes, yes. absolutely. And th- they, they kept on at me. And I said, yeah, I suppose there's another way of telling Bob's story because Bob's archive is so huge and there's an awful lot of stuff that uh, the ITV BBC documentary didn't touch, which I know exists. So maybe if we use the books as, as the thread, we could tell Bob's story again. And it transpires that it turns out to be three one-hour documentaries and, and the production company, Rain Media, said to me, will you produce it? And I said, no, it's not what I do. And the aforementioned Mark Wells, who heads up Rain Media, said, well, you know, if you don't produce it, we'll bring in a producer who doesn't really know much about Bob. He'll learn about it and read about it as part of his job. But he'll be on the phone to you every day saying, oh, tell us about Family Fortunes, tell us about Celebrity So who's better to do it than you? So, yeah. uh, better you? so uh, in the end, I said, yeah. And my wife, Catherine, said, you know, it'll be a, a nice bookend to your career. You started your career with Bob. Wouldn't it be nice to finish your comedy career? producing bob and i said yeah okay i'll do it and it was a wonder it's a terrific experience i thoroughly enjoyed it um one i probably wouldn't repeat because but, but at least on this project it was my my level of expertise did I, you find out anything about him that you didn't know oh gosh yeah oh loads i thought i i thought i was i'm coming as the bob monkhouse expert it's okay no I, I was scratching the surface and i'd known the man for nearly 40 years Ultimately, I didn't realise how good he was and how long he'd been doing it. He'd, we found grainy old black and white footage of a show called For Love or Money, uh, which was resting in the Bob Monkhouse archive. And there he is, a, a youth, a guy, he's in his early 20s, and there he's on black and white TV, Rediffusion, coming from Teddington, oddly enough, the, the, the studios at Teddington, and being very assured and doing jokes and then we found a script we found a script for um for love or money and there he's, he's writing jokes out uh, um, uh, linking to break jokes uh, linking to the end of the show jokes all in biro then handwritten on the script handwritten on the script yeah. which he'd kept and that was the stuff that i was used to with shows like bob's full house and wipeout and and um, bob's your uncle and various game shows but he was doing it right in oh gosh in the in the late 50s early 60s and that's the thing about Bob Monkhouse, you know, we forget that he, we all grew up watching Bob Monkhouse on TV. He was always there. If he wasn't on radio, he was on TV. And maybe that was one of the problems. Because he was always there, he became part of the furniture and overlooked because he was so regularly on TV. Yeah, do, do, do you think he ever got the, the, the recognition he deserved? No, no, I don't think he. I think I th- based on what I've discovered making this, uh, this series called Bob Monkhouse, The Million Joke Man... Uh, for UK TV, I, I even I didn't realise how good he was, and he was very, very good at an awful lot of things. He was um, a dramatic actor, he was a comedy actor. He did in farces, comedy plays, Neil Simon uh, West End shows. He headlined West End musicals. Uh, he was a movie star. He wrote and starred in radio shows. Wrote for other comedians. Wrote and starred in TV shows, variety specials, quiz shows. The, the list of of uh, arrows in the Bob Monkhouse quiver, the various talents as a performer that Bob had, uh, left me 
while making this documentary Spellbound. One of the first things I remember seeing him on, I, don't, I can't remember when it was, you'll probably tell me, but uh, I remember he had a series on BBC Two, I think, which is where he, he brought over these fantastic American stand-ups. First time you'd see these people. Yes. Uh, was that the early, was that the 70s? That was the 70s. That was that was a show that... Um, so he had Leno over and... Yeah. Um, Joan Rivers was one of the first people to show Jim Carrey, one of the first people to show Joan Rivers. Uh, and he'd known Joan for years in the US and loved her when he'd gone to America and to, to, to Vegas and New York to see Joan Rivers work and they became good friends. Uh, so he dragged Joan over and, and she really set the town on fire. But no, uh, Jim Carrey was one of the first and, and Leno and those kinds of folk. Um, Des O'Connor had left the BBC where he'd, be, he'd been hosting this huge chat show uh, for many, many years with enormous skill and Des had taken the show to, to ITV. And so the BBC, Jim Moyer at the BBC tells us that uh, he found himself with a chat show in search of a host. Um, the timing was right. Peter Pritchard got Bob Monkhouse, B- B- Peter Pritchard being Bob, Monk- Bob Monkhouse's agent, got Bob to the BBC at exactly the right time for a, a quiz show called Bob Saul House, which is the bingo show, and this chat show. And, of course, the chat show was wonderful for well, It Bob. was wonderful. And because he was, he, and he could speak with his, speak with authority and respect to the people that he admired. He did also for a, a little while host a version of Opportunity Knocks, didn't he, on the BBC? That's right. Bob says Opportunity Knocks. When was that? That was in the, that was in the mid-80s. And th- that was the Britain's Got Talent of its day. Oh, it was. And was I right in thinking that Lee Evans actually yeah. tried out for that? Yeah. What um, Stuart Morris, the producer, and two other people would tour the country auditioning people. They would go to all areas of the country, and they would um, make notes on who would come on the show. How so different that is to these days to, to <laughs> Britain's Got Talent, where you've got a dozen producers and a monstrous setup. You know, the BBC days, it was. And they still can't get the act. Well, I think that their strike rate is, is kind, of, kind of similar to, to Bob's on Opportunity Knocks. Um, but whenever there were comedians on the show, Stuart Morris was a giant in entertainment, but he was more music. He could. He knew dances. He knew music. He knew how to put on a, 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 a Tom Jones show or an Elgin Humperdinck show with enormous skill. But when it came to comedians, he wasn't so sure. So he brought in Bob and said, "If we're we're auditioning comics, you need to be here because you need to tell me that they're good, and you might as well bring in this team as well." And I was one of the team, and we would sit there at the at that Riverside Studios at Hammersmith and watch these comedians come in and perform their stuff. And some of them were marvellous. And this guy came on called Lee Evans, thin-faced fellow with a, sh- a shock of black hair, and he, he just stood there and put us away with all the... <laughs> blowing himself up and sweating and doing all the physical stuff. And Bob turned to me, and I remember it so well, Gary. He said, I think we're in the presence of genius here. He said, I've never seen anything like this in all my life. This guy is genius. He's like a living cartoon. Lee, Absolutely. Yeah. We'd never seen anything like it. And afterwards, Bob went down and... and told Lee Evans how marvellous he was and how essential he was that he should appear on Bob Says Opportunity Knox. And something happened along the way between, you're a big yes for our show, please, because we know we're going to create a star. Uh, and Showtime, Lee Evans didn't do Opportunity Knox. I, I think maybe he found the manager that looked after him for the rest of his life, Addison Chris. Addison. Yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe Addison said, no, don't you need it? You've got me now, you don't need it. And so mm. Bob really missed out that little bit of glory. Because this was, this was that schism time for comedy, wasn't it? Where, yeah. where all these greats, your Benny Hills and Freddie Stars and all these people were being looked down on. Uh, 
and this new breed of comedians were coming through and came through very strongly and, and dominated the scene for 30 years. And I think Bob, in you talking about terms of his recognition, I think Bob suffered too from the idea that he was just old-fashioned. And it took a while for those new comedians themselves to, to realise what a great talent he was. And so you'll tell us about this book, and I know it, but I know he did the show that BBC Four filmed but never showed, which had almost anyone you could think of from what we would in the old days of called alternative comedy there to worship at the feet of the master. Yes, it? that's right. In this in this doc, with this documentary, um, we found the footage that, uh, that, that, that was shot of Bob when he was very, very ill. I think it's the... I think, actually, it's the... We're saying in the documentary, I'm thinking it's the last show that Bob Monkhouse did. Yeah. Because he was, he was very, very full-faced with the steroids and in a lot of pain. But he took himself down to the the lowdown club at the Albany, uh, the, the Albany pub, the bottom of Great Portland Street. And the, the audience, it was a very intimate crowd. It was a, oh, one more than a hundred there. But there was, there was uh, David Walliams. Jack D. And Ray, uh, um, um, was Jack there? But I, I know Reese Shearsmith was there. And uh, David Walliams was there. And um, Dominic Holland. Mark Steele? Uh, yeah. And uh, Junior Simpson. And John Colshaw was there. And they were, they were real... You know, young, hip guys. And, and John Colshaw. Oh, boy. <laughs> Bob came on and tore the balls off them. Yeah. Oh, God, he was wonderful. Oh, and, and to see those young guys sitting there in awe of the master at work, and they, they've all said, they haven't all, because I didn't speak to David Williams, but I've spoken to the other comedians about it, and they all said, we all sat there in awe. We really were in awe because he was the master at work. And getting good laughs, too, from that tough crowd. Yeah. And they weren't, they weren't, they're not a sympathetic lot. You've you got to be, even though you're ill, you know, it's been announced that you've got a limited tenure of life. Make me laugh. Oh, fuck off. It's still the same. <laughs> it's still the same. It, it, it is worse. But the, the Comedy Awards never really did him any favours, did they? The ITV Comedy Awards, he was pretty much stitched up by them, I felt. I've, I agree with you totally. And uh, it, it was... For me, it was very sad. Was it 19, oh, 1995, 1993? Our notes will tell us somewhere along the line. Um, and Bob called me up and he said, oh, they, they want to give me a, a comedy award. I'm up for best stand-up. And I, and I said, well, who are you against? He said, Joe Brandon, Alan Davis. I said, well, that's a walk in the park. You've got that. It should be a Because at that time, you know, Joe, Joe Brand wasn't working that well and, and Alan Davis was very much new. I said, oh, yeah. And he said, also, they want to give me a Lifetime Achievement Award for... For comedy. Hey, what do you think? And I said, oh, you've got to go for that. He said, oh, is it going to be a stitch up? I said, no. I wouldn't dare. They wouldn't dare. So he said, yeah, OK, I'll go along. Yeah, OK. So he went along. And sure enough, um, he didn't win <laughs> the best stand-up comedian that year. It was won by Joe Brand. But he did win. He was given and presented with and was very funny in his acceptance speech for the Lifetime Achievement Award for comedy. Now, normally on the Comedy Awards, that, is the show closer, but it wasn't. It was kind of three quarters of the way through. There was some awards after that, and I thought, well, something's wrong here. And at the very end, they presented, God bless him, Bruce Forsyth, with the Lifetime Achievement Award for Variety. Now, it's the first time a Variety Award had ever been given on the Comedy Awards, and Bruce ended the show doing, if I remember rightly, a song and dance routine with Liza Minnelli. Great applause. And so I called Bob on the way home in the car. He was sitting in the back of the car and he said, I said, yeah, that was, that was, I wasn't expecting that. And he said, 
I honestly thought it was going to be my night. And that was like a knife in the heart, you know, because had he been stitched up? Well, it was the first time that a variety of water had been injected. And the only time. And to my certain knowledge since. Uh, never, never been repeated. So, so I wondered if there was a, oh, well, you know, we'll give the old sod a, a, this award, but we, we, we'll, we'll steal his thunder somehow. I'm jaundiced enough now to, to think that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm too old to care, frankly, Gary, yeah. I think he was badly... And I'm, I wrote a nice joke. I wrote a nice joke for Bob, I'll be honest with you. I said, um, he holds up the, the, um, the comedy award, and he said, look, it's made, just made for me, isn't it? Uh, a, 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 a comedian, see-through and plastic. <laughs> it got a huge laugh, and it was a nice self-deprecating, yeah, yeah. typically Munkhausian joke, and I was really pleased with that. But the night just had the, had the gloss uh, rubbed off it. It wasn't. It was supposed to be his night, and it wasn't. I felt bitterly sorry for him. But that that goes back to me saying, when you've always been on TV, you're overlooked. You're part of the furniture. A bit of furniture sticks in your room forever. You overlook it. You, you look don't at appreciate the, it until you, it ain't there. Exactly so. Absolutely. And, and as, as a consequence, he was a victim of his own success and fame long, in, in the longer term. This is Chris Pope listening to the Gary's Bushel Show with The Hungry and the Hunted. It's my new single from the album Peace of Mind and it's called Peace of Mind. The Hungry and the Hunted, brought to you by Letopia. Your CV... It goes far beyond Bob. It reads like a who's who of British television talent. I mean, you've got Les Dawson, Lily Savage, Paul Daniels, Mike Reed, uh, Sir Roger Moore, Chris Tarrant, Dale Winton, Joan Rivers, Bradley Walsh, it goes on and on, Julian <laughs> Cleary, Joe Pasquale, Barbara Windsor. They've all died. And most prestigious of all... Mm. Mm. Even the runaway ITV late night smash hit Bushel on the box. Helen Sabetsi had forgotten about that <laughs> career changer. <laughs> it was a career changer. Wasn't it? He went downhill from there. Um, Spill the beans. Who is the worst to work with? The worst to work yes. with. Oh, I can only work with people I like, and I got to like you a lot to want to work with you. Uh, that's why I, I love Paul O'Grady. I love Joe Pasquale. I love Bob. Paul Daniels, I, I'm hugely fond of Paul. I can work with Paul any time. Um, Bradley's a, a charming guy. I enjoy his company enormously. Chris Tarrant's a great guy. This it, is a very diplomatic answer. Come on, there must look be some at, Look at the people that I've only stuck one series with. OK. <laughs> um, I liked Bruce very much. Bruce Forsyth, I liked him enormously, but couldn't get on with him. Just couldn't quite tune into Bruce's comedy. Ego? Oh, sorry. <laughs> And it, it, we didn't gel. I admire the man enormously, but we didn't gel, and I'm sorry we didn't. One person I really I couldn't gel with was Scylla. I just didn't... I just couldn't... I couldn't stand it. I, <laughs> there it is. Uh, I'd, I'd done... What was it? What was well, it? I, I'd done two pilots of Blind Date... Yes. With Duncan Norvell. Ah. Remember Dork Duncan? Yes, Chase Me, Chase Me. Chase Me, a handsome, blonde guy. Um, affected a very camp persona, but was, in real life was entirely the opposite. He was a 
Very funny act. Great act. A rogue for the women. And he was a good voice merchant. Uh, he would. Uh, his, the end of his act was, I think, five minutes of going from cartoon voice to cartoon voice. And it was a tour de force and always got applause. Duncan got the invitation to present Blind Date. And he made two, what I thought were, excellent pilots. In fact, I've never known that Studio One at London Weekend to have such an atmosphere. It was, oh, you could, oh, there was a great crack in that atmosphere because it was a great show for Duncan and Duncan was in, in, in good form. Oh, God, he was in good form. And then for some reason, I was told, uh, the thinking was, well, do we want an apparently homosexual man presenting what is an overtly heterosexual show because it was a dating show, boy meets girl kind of show. And so it was Gillian Stribling Wright, who was the producer at that time, called me up and said, Scylla Black is going to, going to host it would you still like to write it I said well I'm going to go gosh it's Scylla marvellous I it just didn't happen um, very nice to begin with charming and lovely but became more distant as the six part series went on and it, it was one of those things it just didn't gel I didn't enjoy writing the stuff for her the aforementioned Vince Powell was 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 um, Scylla's writer in those days, and 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 Vince had Scylla's ear. She, he he could just get that Scylla Black turn of phrase, which I couldn't get, and it uh, it didn't happen. And so I rather loftily said, "Well, I'm, I think I'm going to walk away from this series, you know, after one series, because I don't think I don't think Blind Date with Scylla Black's got legs." <laughs> <laughs> so I so I went off to other projects. And um, 18 years later, Scylla's still getting... Yeah. Oh, and poor old Duncan's you, ended up a landscape gardener. Oh, oh, gosh, I did. I wonder what happened. Duncan just dropped off the radar one day, didn't he? How interesting, isn't it, that, that had it been different, we would be speaking in glowing terms of, of Duncan as a great television hero. Yeah. Had his series lasted, his tenure on Blind Date lasted 18 years. Hello. I'm Eric Beck-Rubin, hardcore, out-of-control book enthusiast, inviting you to listen to a new show here on Latopia called Burning Books. Every three weeks, we put out a new podcast on a single book. It could be a recent debut, a classic, fiction, non-fiction, and everything in between. The idea is to explore what lies at the heart of great books, books that try to be great but don't quite make it, as well as, now and then, books that are irredeemably bad. So check out our archive shows on Latopia, and we'll look forward to having you join us for our next podcast. Burning Books, exclusively from Latopia.com. Let's talk about your novel. Let's talk about Steam, Smoke and Mirrors, described here as a steampunk comedy thriller mystery, featuring an easygoing Victorian musical magician and his stunning assistant. Presumably involving Madonna-style capes and... All that style. Oh, corsets, thigh-length boots. Uh, hold on, let's just, just focus on that image for a moment. <laughs> I'm just steaming up the little windows in my studio. <laughs> um, my, my, my heroine, Phoebe, um, Phoebe Le Breton, um, she is... Uh, my magician character is called Michael Magister. Yeah. He's a Victorian music hall magician, and his assistant is Phoebe. And it's a very, very kind of, oh boy, sexy in your face act. And they manage to to keep this this act on the on the stage by bribing well no the, the narrator of the book, the, the professor, Professor Artemis Moore, bribes the the Lord Chamberlain 
and to Dora Chamberlain is a bit to turn a blind eye yeah. to basically to the filth. Absolutely, yeah. it's, it's quite raucous on stage. The act is very sexy, totally at odds with with the usual Victorian perceptions and. But that's the great thing about the Victorian time, Gary, isn't it? There was the, all that the underbelly of smut and filth well, the and The music was full of oh, smut, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Analyse Murray Lloyd's, God bless her, Murray Lloyd's songs. They're full yeah. of smut and innuendo. And um, I wanted my, my musical magician to be a, a crime solver. And I wanted to, uh, to make... He, the, the, if you're a magician, you spot things, don't you? And you're used to secrets and subterfuge. And, and, yeah, throwing people off the track. Absolutely. And as a magician, you'd spot that. And so I wanted my magician to be a detective, and he's rode in by the Secret Service at the time, uh, called the Special Branch, to help the Special Branch solve the more arcane, what I'd describe as X-File kind of mysteries that, that were occurring. So the 19th century Mulder and Scully, are the, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or if you prefer it, I, mean, I, would, I like to think as well, John Steed and Emma Peel. Oh, okay. Because it's that kind of relationship. I often think about Emma Peel, but we won't go on about that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Emma Peel, man, appeal, gosh. And um, and so suddenly, it started out, uh, I ought to tell you this, it started out as a TV pilot script, which um, Jeffrey Posner and David Tyler, two excellent, well, I think they're excellent, because they, they liked it. Um, they, they got four square behind smoke and mirrors, as it was then. Uh, but they couldn't sell this particular TV pilot and, and turn it into a series. And so the, the story and the characters, Mag- Michael Magister and Phoebe Le Breton and their adventures, sat on the shelf in my office for 18 months. And then I decided, oh, well, if Jeff and David like the characters and the story, they think it, work- it works, I'm halfway there. Why don't I turn it into a novel? And that's what I've done. But in so doing, obviously, they've grown, they've expanded. I've, I've, I've found out more about my characters in writing the novel than I would have ever known had I written the TV series. Now, that, for me, was fascinating. Um, and also, I, I, I do enjoy magic. I love magic. And I love the musical. I love that, that period of those entertainers, the raw entertainers. So, I mean, now, Dan Leno, people like this, it would have been Little Titch. Yeah, Little Titch. And um, um, Vesta Tilly, of course. What's fascinating if Gus you... Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. The great Gus Elan. Absolutely. For breakfast, I wouldn't think of having tea I likes and half a pint of ale. Oh, absolutely. I'd live my life by that. Only if it was, yes, it's <laughs> an entire lifestyle predicated by the lyrics of Gus. Um, but but um, they were giants in the industry. They would pack the houses night after night. What's interesting, if you examine the music hall, is that it was only the stars that made a living. When you worked in music hall, you didn't live anywhere. You went from theatre to theatre to gigs, from digs to digs. You didn't live in a house. And so if you weren't a success, suddenly when your career, when the wheels fell off your career, you were homeless. And that's why so many music hall artists were drunken destitutes on the street. And that's how people like Sir Harry Lauder and, and Dan Lino and those kind of people got together to form the Variety Artists Association to say, right, we need to help our brothers in performance who are on their beam ends in rags. Which is how the Royal Variety... Which is... Which, Royal Command performance, yeah. as it's properly known, and over that, 100 years ago. And that's how yeah. it started. It started as wow. benevolence. People not... And I, I find that fascinating. You know, your lifestyle was purely doing your act on stage. You, so, would, you would go from theatre to theatre and digs to digs and you wouldn't have a home to go to. But why a musician and his assistant? Because I remember 
At one time you were talking about a detective comedian. Wouldn't that have been easier? Yeah, I, I, imagine a comic as a detective. Yeah. That, that's right up my street. But it, it wasn't enough. What I, like, I, what I liked was, as I said before, it was, it's that subterfuge, the, the, the mystery of, of magic. I'm, I'm, it's not really the trick itself. It's how the magician performs it. You know, you can pick up any book. Of magic. So you have things work, and, yeah. yeah, and you can. We've all seen the yeah. masked magician yeah. uh, in those in those documentaries uh, to see how the tricks are done. But how quickly you forget how the tricks done when you see another performer do it, and you think, "Oh, it's so clever how he's doing it." Um, and, and Paul Daniels, God bless him, he's a master. I've never seen an exponent of magic uh, right from the get go being so good with the crowd. He really was a he was a great audience manipulator. Um, and if we ever get the chance to look back at some of those early. Uh, Paul Daniels magic shows. We actually, it's then you realise, God, how good he is. He but, really is the godfather of magic in this country. Is this a, a diversion for you? Is it a new career path? Are you still going to stick with television? Or? No, television for me really has moved on, hasn't it? Um, now I was used to one producer, and I would go to that producer and say, "Where do you want to go with this? What do you want to do?" Now television is populated by a dozen producers on one show, and there's no real figurehead you turn to for guidance or instruction. And I. I it's not an industry now that I recognise, Gary. Because when we were doing lots of television in the 90s, when mm. I first knew you, because I met you, going off on a tangent here, but I met you on an episode of Celebrity Squares. You were Celebrity Squares. When I was... Up in Nottingham. You were I dressed was up as in the, the box, dressed as a devil. You were dressed as the devil. You came dressed wearing a Satan's outfit. Quite right, as well as my normal clothes. Absolutely. Finally changed. I remember Bob Monkhouse saying, he said, oh, is he appropriately dressed? <laughs> <laughs> What's Gary wearing? Oh, wonderful. That's what Did he say, what a twat? <laughs> enough he did but I wasn't, <laughs> hey! and i wasn't going to tell you that <laughs> I, no, I haven't told you that in, in, in as long as we've known one another <laughs> but yes he, oh god he's a twat <laughs> no, but how appropriately dressed he is i was trying to subvert that media image of me yeah and then yeah. and, and, and rightly so it worked very well and that, that's when we first met um yeah oh gee gosh the thing about the celebrity squares there were two incarnations one was at l street and one was at nottingham and Elstree was very easy for people to get to. You could get people from America who were in, in town, staying at the Dorchester. If they had to go up, up just up the road to Elstree, they'd be quite happy to do a pitch up on Celebrity Squares. Uh, to go 120 miles up the motorway to Nottingham was a bit too much of a stretch and they couldn't be, couldn't be asked. They couldn't be bothered. Two hours in a car, imagine that. Yeah. The poor darlings. Oh, that's exactly. Not, yeah, do, I, do I need it? No, you don't. You had to really want to, you re- really had to want to be on Celebrity Squares, which you did, to make that, that journey. I'd have gone anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the day. And the, this, that series was very good, but it wasn't as good as that classic series at Elstree. You know, that, that first series of Celebrity Squares that Bob did was just magnificent and of course there were stars like Douglas Fairbanks Jr and Christopher Lee and there was Dinah Dawes and oh, those kind of people and of course you had Kenny Everett mm. Kenny Everett was the voiceover man oh boy that was just that was a real departure to come to <laughs> Wincy Willis and me in a book it's not quite the same is it <laughs> and, the, and the woman off, off Gardner's Question Time on radio <laughs> I don't mean that to, to denigrate any of those any of you that did it no that's not that, that's not the point but celebrity suddenly became very wide yeah yeah it became it, it no longer became famous for having a skill yeah it became famous because you were a famous because you've been on telly yeah. mm, absolutely which is why this series of celebrity squares 
that happened last year, perhaps nowhere near as good, would you say? With Warwick? Um, oh, goodness me, that's what... Because the show was made in London, the London weekend, they could get... Bigger, no, oh, yeah, like yeah, Dame yeah. Edna pitching up, for goodness sake. That's just fantastic. Oh, you'd pay fortunes to get Dame Edna on your show. And, and I think probably Warwick will get the measure of the show more so now. I th- uh, it's all... Uh, <laughs> he did this... Oh, I'll, I'll tell you. He, he, we invited him along to talk about Bob on this documentary we just made, and we showed Warwick a piece of paper which was Bob's notes when they send him to America to, uh, to look at celebrity squares, as it was Hollywood squares in those days. And we showed Warwick Bob's notes, and Warwick said, they sent Bob to America. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, they didn't send me to America. They just said, that, have a look at some old tapes. <laughs> <laughs> so Warwick really, and, and no one, I think, involved in the old series of Celebrity Squares was involved in the new series of Celebrity Squares. So there was no one there to say, to, to nurse him through it, really. Everyone's... What about you? Have you never wanted to get up on stage yourself? You never wanted to be a comedian, to, to get the, the performance urge? No, not what I do. I couldn't stand in front of more than 20 people I'm, I'm happy here with you and peter sitting in the corner yeah it's fine because it's a conversation but uh, uh, an audience of people more than 12 people now that's horrible i would hate that and f- the fact that these people have paid as well to see me that was all nah it's not for me but my my joy is 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 helping service the in- helping the person who's on stage getting those laughs that's what i do i'm behind the scenes and I really enjoy that. Anon- so let's talk more about the novel because the novel, the whole idea, I haven't read it obviously, but the, the idea excites me. I, I, I can already picture it from the way you've described it as being a TV series or a film. So hopefully be the first of many. But for people who don't know, what is steampunk? What's all that about? Steampunk, if you, oh gosh, if you Google steampunk and go to images, suddenly you're given this, you're, you enter a whole new world. It's. I would describe steampunk as Victorian science fiction or a Victorian's idea of the future. Okay. So you've got... If Charles Babbage, uh, the inventor of the difference engine and the, um, the, the, the godfather of, of computer sciences, if he'd finished his difference engine and, and you had a steam-driven computer uh, making these calculations and, if you, and, and airships flying around and I'm up in Steam Smoke and Mirrors, I've got a, a steam-driven car... Uh, banging around the, the streets of the Strand and, and Fleet Street and stuff with, with horse-drawn carriages um, coming out of its way as this snorting beast comes before them. Um, um, <laughs> it's, and, and, oh, it's sexy. God, steampunk's so sexy. You know, you get good-looking guys in top hats and, and elegant Victorian clothes with, with jewellery made of cogs and stuff. And the women, they're wearing these thigh-length boots, Gary, and they're wearing corsets and these fascinator hats. And, oh, yeah, it's just great. And, and steampunk folk... It's 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 growing all the time. I went to a bookshop only yesterday um, at Forbidden Planet, at top of Shaftesbury Avenue, and went to the steampunk section, thinking mm, maybe my book might appear here one day. And the steampunk section has grown enormously since the last time I went, which was six months ago. So steampunk's on a roll now, and so maybe my timing's right. Um, think of Jules Verne. Think of H.G. Wells. Um, I was actually thinking of the Jetsons and their promise of the future that never happened because I still haven't got me flying car. I'm not <laughs> waiting for that. <laughs> oh, is it likely to be in the steampunk section or is it a forbidden planet or is it more likely to be in the sort of downstairs adult bit with the erotica? Is it a bit, bit filthy or am I reading between the lines? I think you're reading between the lines. I, want, I wanted to make it a bit saucy. I, I, yeah. I was, and so I set up the website, www.steamsmokeandmirrors.com and the idea was that at certain points in the plot in the novel... 
I would put a little symbol and then I would I'd do a little puzzle. And if you could solve the puzzle, you could hit that symbol on the website and you could see the behind the scenes scene that happened. And I was writing some filth because, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'd seen what E.L. James, God bless her, had done with, with Fifty Shades of Grey and thought, well, there's a market for filth. So I'm like, <laughs> I I've got the imagination to do all that kind of stuff. So I was writing these sexy scenes. And in the end, I looked at it and I thought, mm, does it need it? And at the moment, I'm thinking it doesn't. You didn't ask the good Mrs. Johnson, uh, Mrs. Johnson, is she? The good Mrs. Edmonds to act it out? Mrs. The good Mrs. Edmonds doesn't know about Mrs. Johnson yet, so thank oh, you very much for, for blowing that, blowing that gaff now. for me. <laughs> it's got all Mrs. Johnson's blown. But... <laughs> um, and I thought, oh, no, no. So um, let's, 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 I, let, sexy enough. I go to great lengths to describe what she's wearing and what she's doing and the allure of her sitting in this this panting throne of disintegration as it steams and sweats and throbs. So this could be a phone line as well as a spin-off. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Hit, hit Colin read out the film. Yeah. <laughs> I'm told by your publisher that one of the characters is a drunken, debauched, foul-mouthed priest. Yeah. Um, is this just an excuse for an attack on religion? Is there some sort of... Shameless attack Catholic on Catholic bashing. No, it's a, a shameless Bishop attack. On, yes, it's a, it's a shameless attack on religion in general. Uh, I, I just love the fact that this, this priest is is in the middle. In medieval times, they used to call priests smell smocks because they were. That's what they were. They were loathsome things. And um, and um, and Father Connor O'Connor, for that is his name, the son of unimaginative parents. Uh, when it came to naming him, uh, he's he's the local Catholic priest, and he is. He is a drunken, debauched, foul-mouthed oaf. And he helps um, Michael Magister and Phoebe Liberton uh, solve their mysteries. He's one of their emissaries. I've also got, a, I've also got a, the, the obligatory dwarf, uh, uh, a workshy dwarf who sits there, a curmudgeon, um, scowling, and he works behind the scenes at the theatre and helps them with their magic show. Uh, so all the requisite ancillary characters are there too. I think I married his sister. <laughs> um, there is a, a running theme here in your work I've noticed because one of the other things you do in the esteemed street uh, magazine Street Sounds you have a foul mouth cartoon character called Super Yob so there's obviously a, a, a hidden, hidden treasure trove of nonsense going on there it's interesting because I'm I love every, everything that's hip and fashionable and off the wall so I, I love the punks I love the Sex Pistols I still love Johnny Rotten I love John. Oh, when he pitches up in those butter adverts, it just puts me away. <laughs> that, that hint of menace and, and anarchy in his eyes as he does it. Oh, it's just... Country life on his toast. Exactly, <laughs> absolutely right. Farmer's wife. And, uh, and I love punk and I love, I love all the extreme stuff. I love heavy rock and all that and, and, and oi. And I, and I love Bob Marley. I mean, me loving Bob Marley. And I, I'm about as square to look at as it... Excuse that quaint old expression. I'm as square to look at as it's possible to be. And I was never a punk, and I was never a heavy, a heavy metal rocker, because I couldn't carry it off. I got, I've got to look like me. doesn't stop me liking the stuff, though. Doesn't make, I can't dress as a steampunk. Some people can carry off that Victoriana with skill and style. And Rankin I, comes with all sorts of funny old Victorian clothing the, going on. The legendary Robert Rankin, who is the godfather of British steampunk, he can, he can carry it off because he's got that wonderful grey beard. I can't do that. I, I just, I'm too ordinary. Don't stop me loving those, those particular niche genres, though. And that's why when I was approached by Street Sounds to... Um, cartoon uh, a strip called Superyob about a, an alien skinhead thug <laughs> <laughs> 
foul-mouthed beast. His um, mission in life is to fuck stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> As is the way of all punkery. Yeah. And um, uh, uh, the opportunity of drawing a cartoon strip, oh, it's just another, another, another thing to your bow, isn't it, really? You know, so... so Look, I've got to pull you up on something here, because you've told me quite blatantly that you had no wish to perform, and yet I happen to know that you have appeared and acted in two rather fine videos with the Cornish legend that is Jeff Road. Um, ah, yes. What did the director say about your performances? Do you remember? <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, I was asked to contribute a few jokes and sketches to the Jethro videos, which are still huge sellers. Yeah. And um, one day, one of the actors didn't turn up, and so Colin Fay, who used to be Des O'Connor's producer at the BBC and ITV, they produced uh, Today with Des and Mel. Colin Fay was, was involved in these Jethro videos at the time and said, he said, oh, you're going to have to play Doctor. You're going to have to play drunken man sitting in the corner of the pub. And I said, oh, OK. So I did. And it was great fun. I enjoyed it. And afterwards, Colin Fay said, that, I've got to be honest with you, that, that has to be the worst performance I've ever seen in my life from anybody. He said, I wish I'd gone down the pub and got a fella out the bar and said, can you play Doctor? Because you were crap. But what did you do? I was just, I was, I think I was overdoing it. I was mugging and <laughs> okay, gurning yeah. and, and, and doing absurd walks. Of course you were doing it for the stage, darling. It's when <laughs> Who makes you laugh now, Colin? O'Grady is genius. I love, oh, oh, Paul O'Grady has just got to open his mouth and I'm in tux because he's, the, his use of language, he's so erudite, he's so smart. Um, something will happen on Paul O'Grady's Radio 2 show on a Sunday afternoon uh, something will happen and I'll think of something and Paul will think of it at the same time and say it as I think of it. And then that's me finished. Paul will then extend the idea two, three, four times and that's genius. Off the hook. Oh, on, 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 oh. in, in it, just it's so frustrating. Just... It's like when Madonna fell off the stage, at the, I turned to my wife and I said, the fallen Madonna with the, with the, with the, uh, the bruised boobies. Oh, wow, I thought, well, yes. That's a great line. Of course, by the next day, front page of the sun. Suddenly. Yes. Too similar to use Absolutely. it. Yeah. Graham Norton makes me laugh. Yeah. Um, Wanda Sykes, the, Amer the black American comedian, I think is, is, is yeah, wonderful. Excellent. I saw another guy on, on, the, uh, on BET on satellite the other day, Earthquake. Big black guy. Oh, God, he was funny. He really made me laugh. Who doesn't make you laugh? We don't make me laugh. Um... Who do you hate as a comedian? Or is, hate might be a strong word, but who can't you stand? <coughs> I've, I've got enormous respect for anyone who can stand there in front of a crowd and try and get laughs. God, you've got to have balls for that. You've yeah. got to have a bottle. But it's a lot easier with a modern comedy crowd than it is in yeah. the old days when you used to go in front of a load of uh, dockers or whatever and yeah. have to make them laugh. What's interesting, not avoiding your question, but m from my point of view, I don't get what the audience laughs at now. I'll hear the, com the com young comedians go out and, and strut their stuff with stuff, Rod Gilbert talking about stuff, and the crowd are hooting. Oh, Michael McIntyre's a genius. Oh, his, his use of the stage is wonderful. Uh, and his, his articulation is terrific. And we went, I went to see my daughter was working on his Christmas show. And we went along to watch his Christmas TV show being, my wife and I went along to watch this Christmas TV show being recorded. And the crowd was screaming with laughter at what Michael McIntyre was saying. And I gazed upon him with admiration and awe. And I agreed with everything that he was saying. But I wasn't laughing. It didn't make me laugh. And that says more about me than him and the crowd now. Every, comedy's moved on and left me behind because I don't get what makes the audience laugh anymore. I used to. You'd write a joke and you think, yeah, that'll get a laugh. Now I, I, the guys are, are doing stuff that... Mm, it's getting laughs and I don't understand why. But that's more about me. 
I very carefully plotted murder for several months. I decided that I was gonna I was gonna kill him. And had it very well, I thought, laid out. But there's always that X factor that you never take into account. I don't think that there's a jury in this country that would have convicted me of murder. This is Litopia. After Dark. The Net's first and foremost literary salon. Colin Edmonds, you claim to be one of the greatest living authorities on the TV series Lovejoy. So let's test that absurd and frankly dubious claim right now. (laughs) Here are a dozen mastermind-style questions to test your knowledge of the comedy drama series, which aired on BBC One in the 1980s and the 1990s. Here are 13, no, okay, here are 16 questions based on Lovejoy. Okay. How many can you get right in 30 seconds? Oh, gosh. Or even 45. We'll give you a bit more time. Thank you. Starting now, the TV series Lovejoy is based on the novels by Jonathan Gash. (laughs) Who adapted Lovejoy for television? Jonathan Gash's novels were adapted by Ian Lafrenet. Aha. Correct. What is Lovejoy's first name? I've no idea, but I think nobody has any idea because his his na- his first name is never mentioned in the books or in the TV series. It's Colin. Who wrote the theme music <laughs> to the series? Uh, that was uh, Dennis King. Tinker Dill, played by Dudley Sutton, works for Lovejoy in which capacity? Oh, he's, he's his barker. He's his an- an- antiques barker. Eric Catchpole is apprenticed to Lovejoy because he doesn't want to join the Catchpole family business. What is that business? They are in they live their local market. They're butchers. When Eric leaves the series, he works at his uncle's pub. Who played the uncle? Warren Mitchell. Dennis Taylor guest stars in an episode concerning an antique snooker table said to be once owned by which queen? Mary Queen of Scots. Lovejoy's apprentice, Beth Taylor, was played by Diane Parrish, who currently stars in EastEnders. Name the actor who played Beth's father, coincidentally, who is also now starring in EastEnders. That was very definitely Rudolph Walker. When Lovejoy's business partner and love interest, Lady Jane Felsham, leaves the stately home Felsham Hall, who buys it? Uh, there was a bidding contest. It was Gimbert, Charlie Gimbert. In the episode Ducking and Diving, Warren Mitchell plays Eric's uncle. Uncle Jack, what's Uncle Jack's profession? Uh, Jackson, Uncle Jack, Uncle Jack, Uncle Jack. Oh God, he's a publican. In the episode Kids, which actress played the flatmate of Lovejoy's daughter? Oh God, beautiful! You see her, you see. Her. Oh, he's Mini Driver, fantastic. Lovejoy has a relationship with Lady Jane Felsham's old school friend Victoria Cavero, played by Joanna Lumley. Where had Victoria Cavero been living for the past ten years? Oh, it was either Chile or Argentina. I'm going to say Chile. In the episode of the Napoleonic Commode, Alexis Sale plays a con man living in Spain. Name the character. That, oh, that was that was Freddie the Phone. Something of a mystery surrounds Lovejoy's daughter in Sugar and Spice. Lady Jane mentions that Lovejoy has just one daughter. In season one, she is called Kate. And he's played by who? Oh, gosh, uh, Vicky was was Amelia Shankly. So who played Kate? Oh, my goodness me. Then, uh, and, and then another incarnation later on was another Amelia, and I can't remember who played Kate. Charlotte Edwards. Oh, yes, it was. Yes, it was. I can see it. In seasons two and three, she is called what? Oh, she's Vicky. In season six, her name is spelled what? Oh, now that, it's, it's in season... I think it's... I think it's... Mm, is it C-K-I? V-I-C-K-I? So, V-I-K-I. Ah. Do you know who played Vicky when it was spelt V-I-C-K-Y and who played Vicky when it was spelt V-I-K-I? Yeah, one was Amelia Shankly and the other one was uh, another Amelia whose name escapes me. Amelia Curtis. Ah. Time's up and you've got an incredible 13 out of 16. Oh, disappointing because I'm coming as the authority here, Gary, but uh, thank you for that. (laughs) Colin Edwin, Steam, Smoke and Mirrors. Out when? Uh, early part of March, March the 12th on Amazon, on your, all your local bookshops. With uh, lots of C on the website as well. 
Is that right? What's coming on the website? Oh, my goodness me. The, uh, which website is going to be behind the scenes? You know the special features on a DVD? Uh, the website's going to be full of that. Yeah. Me talking about it, outtakes, stuff like that. Excellent. Thank, Colin, thank you ever so much for coming in. Thank you for your time, Gary. I've always, I've always loved you, and um, uh, I'm, I'm glad this, 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 is, uh, this has repaid that love. <laughs> <laughs> this has been The Gary Bushel Show on wonderful Radio Latopia. Check us out at latopia.tv slash Gary.